Well, welcome listeners to another edition of Booth One, your trusted podcast for the very best in the art of lively conversation. Frank and Gary here celebrating the third anniversary of Booth One. Can you believe it, Frank? Wow, yeah. I, I know it's not the third year for you, no. but it's the third <laughs> year for me. Did you know what the traditional anniversary gift for three years is? Three I don't know, years. but I hope you have it for me. Well, it's leather. Oh, I uh, may pass on that. <laughs> so I'm looking for a wallet or a belt or, uh, or a whip, maybe something like that uh, as a nice gift. Well, three years ago, we sat down in front of these microphones to create a podcast that would entertain, be informative, and introduce our listeners to some of the finest talent in the world of entertainment and popular culture. Three years later, we're still going strong, thanks to you, our loyal listeners. So thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll continue to support Booth one and thank you frank for continuing uh, the uh, saga that is booth one. Oh, it's my pleasure believe me <laughs> how you've been feeling <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> uh, um no i've i about a week ago i caught a cold and i'm at the tail end of it now but if you hear me laugh i sound like i smoke 10 packs of cigarettes a day which i've never smoked any cigarettes ever but that's gonna be what i sound like so okay. i just okay. apologize for that in okay. advance that's quite all right it'll it'll have a good booth one flavor it'll, you know yeah, like, it will in the 30s and 40s, I'm sure they smoked That's up right. in, the, in Booth One at the uh, Ambassador <laughs> East. I'm sure there was a lot of that going on. Well, in these three years, we've covered a vast array of the cultural arts, from theater to music, writing to filmmaking. One of our favorite episodes was episode number 12, Frank, uh, mm-hmm. with the circus performer and aerialist Sylvia Hernandez de Stasi, who's the founder of the training school at the Actors Gymnasium right here in Evanston, Illinois, wow. right down the street. Well, we have one of her prized teachers with us in the booth today. His aerial work in Moby Dick at the Looking Glass Theater a couple of seasons ago was stunning, and he's quite the actor as well. Let's welcome today Javen Ulimbear. I know that that's not how you pronounce your name in your native language, so why don't you pronounce it for us in your native language and then tell us what that is. Uh, My last name is pronounced in Mongolian as Ulimbear. It has a little bit of inflection to the L in M and R. It kind of is very similar to the, the name of the capital city of Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar, which is very similar. And Ulaanbaatar actually stands for a red hero. And I don't know where it comes from. Probably has something to do with the old school communist uh, regime yeah. <laughs> of Russian <laughs> influence. Sure. I, I, yeah. There's probably something to that. We don't necessarily have a last name. We use our last name is our dad's first name, usually. Oh, wow. So we don't have like a family name. So the fact that my name is Javen Ulambayer, Ulambayer is not necessarily my last name, but it's my dad's first name. Well, Javen Ulambayer is a fantastic it name. It is a great name. What, in whatever language you're talking you're right. about. Javen is spelled J-A-V-E-N for our listeners. And Ulambayer, I'll just spell it the way we spell it in America, U-L-A-M-B-A-Y-A-R. Yep. Your English is quite excellent. I need to know a little bit about your story. When did you come to the United States from Mongolia? You were born in Mongolia. You lived there for quite some time. Yes. And you moved here when? So I moved here with my parents back in 2005. It's, it's a long journey. It's a long, long history sort of story to it. And uh, I was born and raised in Mongolia, the capital city of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar, and went to high school. I graduated high school there. And my mom, she, she's a very traditional performer. She's a contortionist and she went to the National Circus in Mongolia since she was like the age of five or six. 
and uh, she's pretty well known in the sort of the world of what she does, and she's received a lot of prestigious awards. And the United States basically wanted uh, the circus school that I ended up going to in Minnesota. The director of that school wanted my mom to come out and teach, her, share her cultural art form. That was、um, uh, Juventus. Juventus, yeah, yep. In、uh, Saint Paul. In Saint Paul, Minnesota.、Yeah. Yes, the director Dan Butler. Invited my mom to come out, and at the time I was still 17. Yeah, she didn't want to leave me back in Mongolia, so she had to go through this paperwork process and try to get me to come out with her. My dad also ended up coming along. My dad was a, is a sort of academic person. He's a not he's, in he's a not in the circus arts.、Uh, nope, nope.、Um, he's and, a physician. Uh, he's well, a physi- well yeah. it's it's good for a contortionist to be married、that's、to a physician. I think an orthopedist would be great. If you had to yeah, guess, that's、absolutely. actually the story of how my parents met because she hurt herself and she went、uh, to a doctor、uh-huh. and this on-site physician was my dad at the time. And then they met, and I think my mom kind of just fell in love with them right away. And later on, they ran into each other because my mom was running around in this mall. She had lost her wallet, and she had ran into him, and they both ended up searching for her wallet. <laughs> and that's、wow. kind of the story of it.、Oh. That's fantastic. What's、yeah. your mother's name? She goes by Oyuna. That's her nickname. Oyuna.、Uh, the full name is Oyun Chimik. And she's rather world famous in what she does, is she not? Yeah, her and my cousin, so it would be her、uh, niece. They ended up doing a dual contortion, just like a partner contortion, and they ended up taking it to the, the different places of the world. And they ended up essentially going to Monte Carlo, which is the the biggest sort of festival in the world for circus artists. And this is back in like '87, and、uh, they ended up winning the second prize, which is this big clown silver trophy. Which is still considered the biggest award in the history of Mongolian national circus、wow. since the '87. So that is kind of the platform that she had, and that allowed her to be able to visit U.S. and teach contortion. And Now, growing up, did you have any aspirations to be a circus performer? Not necessarily, because when you're in a th- sort of a third world country and then you're doing circus. You, you choose to become a circus performer. You don't just kind of do it as a recreational circus performer. You you have to commit to, it, and that's what you do. And you ca- kind of go through this like selective process of like, okay, this guy's got long arms, long legs. Maybe he'll be a juggler. He'll be like a handstand balance. He's a little bit shorter. Maybe we can give him, you know, put him on teeterboard. He can be a good tumbler. And then once you start doing that, that's just kind of what you have to do. It's like a full-on commitment. And my mom, growing up doing all of that, she. Didn't necessarily want me to do that, <laughs> as as well as she'd done in her world. She just never really wanted me to do circus, and my dad has always wanted me to go to school and go to grad school. And but at least that was in Mongolia. And then when we moved to Minnesota, Saint Paul, mom mom started wor- working at the circus school Juventus, and、uh, I just remember seeing this big. Big state-of-the-art facility with a bunch of kids who were my age doing circus, and they were just having so much fun. It was like a recreational thing at this point, and I was like, "Hey, I want to do this." <laughs> You're absolutely spot on with the fact that becoming a circus performer or aspiring to be one is very much like any other very intense athletic activity. You really have to commit yourself to it. For instance, the you know the Olympics just happened.、Uh-huh. The Winter Olympics、uh, just finished a few days ago, and The figure skating athletes are absolutely amazing. The core strength, the leg strength. They were saying when they do a flip and they land, they're they're putting on six hundred. 
plus pounds of pressure on their single knee as they land on the ice. One of the great things about this Olympics in the ice skating was that they showed a lot of backstage shots of them Uh in the warm-up room without their skates on. They were just on these mats, and they were doing ballet moves, and they were doing triple flips in the air. The abs and the core strength Mm -hmm. were just phenomenal. I assume that in what you do, Javen, that conditioning is really one of the prime aspects of becoming a good performer. What would you say are your aerialist specialties? When I first went to circus school, you just kind of have to try out everything. You become this part of part of a team of like 15, 16 kids, and you're just trying everything out for at least a couple of years. And and at some point, you kind of have to choose like a specialty apparatus, and I ended up choosing straps, aerial straps, which is very similar to gymnastics rings in a sense. And as a, as a, as a kid, I always played on the playground and just kind of messing around and like on the on this high bars, low bars, and rings. And I think that kind of translated into what I ended up essentially ended up doing, which is aerial straps. Are they canvas straps? Are they cotton? Sometimes um, it could be cotton. I think cotton has a little bit of uh, less of a sort of uh, tension. A lot of the times it's reinforced with nylon and that basically makes it a little bit stronger to hold with because once you're holding on to it and doing these big giant drops, you do want to make sure that that, that it can take the load of sure. Of that these weight. are yeah. two straps suspended from the ceiling. Yeah, that you wind your wrists, hands, feet, legs around. I won't say neck. That's probably not. <laughs> Hopefully not. That's probably neck. not a good. Some, yeah. way to some, do some, it. some folks do. And, and your body at times, and you do aerialist. Maneuvers, maneuvers, I guess. That's that's a good way to put it. And when you start on something like that, it's so new and just so kind of like a refreshing point of view from someone who's never really touched something like that. You really just have to maneuver your way through the apparatus to kind of understand the feel of it and how your body connects to it. And everybody's different in terms of proportions. You just have to understand how your body works with this apparatus and spend a lot of time on it. What else do you do besides straps? Trampoline, Russian Russian bar. What's the Russian bar? Russian bar is essentially three pieces of plumbing tubes, and you just uh, tape all of them together tightly, and then at the end, both ends, you have these sort of paddings to put on your shoulders so the porters can have, their, have it on their shoulders, and essentially you have a flyer in the middle sort of bouncing on top of the bar, and you kind of toss oh them God. up in the air. Wow. Uh, which is wow. really not a thing for me because as a base, like, my back just couldn't take it. I've done it for some time, but it was just at some point I was like, I'm going to focus on something a little bit more aerialistic and I want to be sure. hanging mm-hmm. upside down. Yeah. Anything else that you're a special uh, I also do tea this in? thing called the Chinese pole. It's essentially a vertical pole that's bolted into the floor and you guide down from the top of the pole. It's wrapped around with this sort of neoprene, if you will, sort of this like rubbery material, so it's a little bit stickier. Essentially, I just, I just, I just explore ways to kind of climb up on the pole, and you know, how do I come out of it? How do I come up? I'll climb onto the pole, like in between, what do I do? So I just maneuver my way on the pole and just try to explore the art of Chinese pole. The Chinese pole has been featured in a number of movies. I can think of one, Ocean's Eleven. Mm. Uh, George Clooney and Brad Pitt go to see an act at one of the casinos because they're looking oh, for no. what they call a grease man. Mm-hmm. What the grease man is, you don't really know, but you find out it's someone who can do aerial tricks, acrobatics, and they watch this young acrobat yep, jump from bar to oh, bar. Wow. Is that that the Chinese? That's right, absolutely. Th- that yeah. the Chinese pole? Yeah, if I remember correctly, there was one in the wedding crash where too. At one yeah. of the weddings, there was a stunt double for Owen Wilson. He was, he was kind of climbing yes. up the pole and doing all this crazy stuff. You could 
clearly, clearly tell. I'll have to watch for those. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. them, but yeah, yeah. I'll have to yeah. watch for it. I, was just, I just remember being very excited to see that. I want to hear a little bit more about your journey here. You live in the area. You live nearby. I do. Our I studios live in Skokie. In Skokie. Yep. Skokie has quite phenomenally one of the larger Mongolian populations outside of Mongolia. You're right. I don't know how you found out that, that information. That's oh, great. Well, yeah. we have wow. our sources. All right. <laughs> We're not particularly a mountainous country in Evanston and Skokie. We do have some snow here in Chicago, but we certainly don't have the kind of environment that Mongolians would naturally migrate to, maybe a little more in Minnesota, I'm not sure, but maybe. what is it about Skokie that has attracted such a, a large population of Mongolians? Oh man, that's a great question. I would say that it's probably very similar in terms of how immigration starts in the first place for any other people. You do need that support system as an immigrant. You come out here and if you don't know the how the culture is, what that system, how everything works, then you, you do need a reference point. You need to, to know somebody or family members or whoever it is that you just need to kind of go out there and seek help. At How did Skokie. you end up in Skokie? My brother was here. My brother went to uh, university in Oklahoma five or six years before we had moved here. He somehow ended up in Chicago and he was just living in Skokie. But when we moved to America, we just knew that we were going to Minnesota from a mom to start working at the circus school. But before then, we had to settle in somewhere. And, and at that point, my brother was still in Skokie. So he kind of like arranged the sort of living arrangement, apartment and all that stuff. So we just ended up moving here. But we had no idea also at the same time, there was the highest concentration of Mongolians in Skokie. Mm-hmm. How much English did you have before you came here? Because your English is perfect. And I don't even oh, detect an accent. Thank you. When I moved here, I, I spoke very less English. I, I could understand a lot more than I could speak. My written language was definitely a little bit better, and I could understand a little bit more. But like in terms of speaking, it was it was pretty abysmal. Thirteen years ago, I could say hi, hello, uh, I'm good, how are you? I could say these things, and people would assume that I actually just speak English, and they would just start talking at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that point, I would, you know, right. I really just had no idea what they were saying, so I just start smiling. You know, it's just, just my. I, I do. I do the same thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But then slowly but surely, you just picked it up. I think if I ended up hanging out, just being around Mongolians all the time, I still do speak Mongolian with my parents and my brother. But if I had spent a lot more time just around the Mongolian community, I think maybe perhaps I would not have been able to speak at the level that I am. But I, I stayed in Skokie for a very short period of time, and I just ended up going to Minnesota, of all the places where there's just no Mongolians. <laughs> you just can't expect to find yeah, any Mongolians. That's true. Ironic. Yeah. And, uh, so you had to speak English up there. Yeah, and I ended up surrounding myself with a bunch of circus folks, circus friends who were my age, and all Minnesotan kids, and they just ended up being my lifelong friends. I was also 17, 16, 17 at the time, so it was kind of like a sponge at the time. Was yeah, just the younger like you are, the everything. easier it is to, to learn a language. Yeah, absolutely. My brother is like, almost nine years older than I am, and he's been here for six or seven years before I had moved here, and he's got a thick accent. He does. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You went to the University of Minnesota uh, when you were 19, you enrolled there. I did. Um, I'm sure that was a great immersive experience, especially in learning the language there. And you have a degree in kinesiology. I do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm having this pain in my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about kinesiology and why you chose to study that. Sure. The kinesiology sort of definition is that it's basically like a biomechanical analysis of body movement. And when I first started started going to college, uh, my, uh, 
a friend of mine uh, who's actually the son of this Chim Chim Geshe, this is the lady who like kind of sort of helped us out quite a bit in Minnesota. He was two years ahead of me, and, and he was my reference point at that time because I didn't really speak English that w- very well, and I like didn't just know how the system worked in college and all of that stuff. And he was going to University of Minnesota. He was a sophomore at the time, and he was studying kinesiology. And at that point, I really just didn't know what I wanted to study, except I was just like, I'm going to follow this guy. I think he knows what he's doing. I, I knew there were tons of possibilities, but me being having done circus for a little bit at that time a couple of years and i kind of just started enjoying the, the sort of mechanics of body movements and just sort of the idea of learning about body movements sounded very enticing to me so i just kind of went for it sure they're they're very joined endeavors um, i'm sure that you've assisted some circus performers with kinesiology and in their injuries or their aches and pains and you may have even self-treated yeah absolutely it's <laughs> it's it's very helpful and when you go to a and go into a program like that, you have to do like 500 hours of shadowing before you graduate the program. So you just end wow. up being around a bunch of physical therapists and learn a lot from it. I need to touch upon a couple of things that we saw earlier in the last couple of weeks. And Frank, you and I went to something. I want to talk about one uh, show that I saw just recently with our producer at the Victory Gardens. We saw a play called Breach. And the subtitle of Breach is A Manifesto on Race in America Through the Eyes of a Black Girl Recovering from Self-Hate. Ooh. (laughs) Now, I'm not laughing at at that subtitle so much as uh, I'm laughing at something I'll tell you about. This is by Antoinette Nwando, who did a play called Passover a season ago or so at Steppenwolf, but in the upstairs space at Steppenwolf. And it was really an examination of race in America. It had quite the notoriety and got a lot of press here in Chicago. And it was a wonderful show. And Spike Lee has uh, filmed it from the stage oh, they, really? they came and they oh, remounted so we'll it downstairs it. and he filmed it and i believe it premiered at park city or at telluride this year i can't maybe okay. it was sundance sundance, sundance would i think yeah. yeah for sure wow anyway uh we went to a play by antoinette nuandu called breach this is from earlier in her career one of her first plays the title does not do it justice it's in essence kind of a comedy Mm-hmm. Uh, I laughed out loud many times, and I'm not much of an out, out loud laugher at, at plays, uh, but it's about a young woman who is struggling in her life, young when I say young 20s or something. Okay. She's struggling in her life. She's kind of in a dead-end job in the academic world, and she's got a boyfriend, and their relationship isn't really going anywhere, even though they've been together for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And... Many things happen. She also lives with her aunt, oh. uh, who gives a brilliant, brilliant performance. Linda Bright Clay, who's been an actress here in Chicago for many years, plays Aunt Sylvia, and she <laughs> is marvelous in the show. This play runs through March 11th, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And it's playing where, you said? It's playing at the Victory Gardens, Victory Gardens. which is in the old Biograph Theater right. uh, yeah. on Lincoln Avenue. One of the things that made me laugh about this title, and though it seems like a very serious title, is at one point towards the end of the play, one of the characters, not the main characters, they're having a conversation about, gee, I really didn't expect life to turn out this way and never would have imagined that she would have become X, Y, or Z or that I'd be in this place. 
And the other character says, listen, this isn't a manifesto on race in America through the eyes of a black girl recovering from self-hate, <laughs> which drew probably the loudest <laughs> laugh of the evening. But I can't recommend it more highly. Again, this is Breach by Antoinette Nwandu. It runs at Victory Gardens through March 11th. This is directed, by the way, by Lisa Portes. Another show that we saw, and you and I went to this together. We did. Um, The beginning of my illness, although not from the show. (laughs) Although. Started feeling sick. We went to a play called You Got Older at the Steppenwolf Theater. This is a play by Claire Barron, directed by Jonathan Berry, and featuring a cast that's peppered with Steppenwolf ensemble members, including Glenn Davis and Francis Guinan and Caroline Neff. Frank, I want you to talk about this play a little bit. Okay. What did you think? How, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what this play was trying to portray. Well, the, yeah, the basic idea of the play was this woman who maybe, what would you say, mid-30s or so, kind mm-hmm. of a young woman, mm-hmm. ex-lawyer. She was a lawyer, but she recently lost her job, so she's moved back home to kind of take care of her father, who's having some health issues, and various members of her family are also kind of in and out. I thought visually it was really quite stunning. The projections and the way that they used the the background of the stage, I thought was great. I mean, trees were shimmering, and you know there was some really really wonderful visual. It things. takes place mostly in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it does. We it get does. that sense. So, so there's you have a, a north woodsy kind there's of. There's a lot of rain. There is. There <laughs> snow. is snow. Uh, there's yeah. There's an outdoor woodsy really, quality. Yeah, too. they really do that very well, and the performances are really quite good. I, I wasn't sure. I thought the play said anything about anything. That was my big objection to it. I watched it. I'm like, okay, okay. And then when it was over, I'm like, well, she took care of her father, I guess. Who is having health issues, as you say, to clarify he has cancer and he's being treated for it. Right. That's the health issue. Uh, Throat throat cancer, I think, something Mm -hmm. like that. Of course... Nothing good happens to him by the end of the play. I'm not giving really anything away. You can see that coming a million miles. From the title, even. So I felt probably a little more strongly negative about this play. I thought that the casting was mm, questionable in a couple of roles. I love Caroline Neff, and I've seen her in a number of things, including The Flick, Uh, a couple of seasons ago Mm -hmm. at Steppenwolf, but I thought that perhaps she was miscast in this. You said something to me at intermission, which I thought was very telling about what we were watching. Not so much a critique of the play, but of the experience we were having. You said, it's sort of languid, do you remember telling me I that? I do. It was. It felt kind of languid. It, it, yeah. it was very, very slow-paced, very methodical, almost at times plotting. You remarked on one of the scenes where the father and the daughter are sitting at a kitchen table, and he brings in his <laughs> phone, his mobile phone, his cell phone, mobile phone. <laughs> what are you in England? <laughs> what are you British? I'm a hundred. Yeah. He brings in his cell phone and announces that he's got a new theme song for himself. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that I don't know what that really means. There's something when they were younger or something. Maybe they had songs yeah. to and represent he, something. And he turns the phone on and he starts this song, which is a lovely song by mm-hmm. a, a, a female singer. It's got a little folksy quality, a little folk pop like quality to it. Maybe like an old. Judy Collins type tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couldn't quite understand all of the words that were going on. But or any of them. 
uh, or, or any of them. It went on for, I would say, a good four minutes. Yeah, was, they played the entire song while they sat there and listened to music. They sat there I and like listened. I like to listen to we, music, but I don't necessarily want like, to watch people listening to music, especially if I don't know the song. That sort of like, why am I watching them? And they weren't even reacting to it. If you could see one person was brought to tears or you know, something was happening between the two, they were just kind of both sitting there like listening to a song. I would say it's one of the great acting performances of all time yeah. to just sit there and listen to that song. I don't, I don't know not how do they, anything. Yeah. I don't know how they got through the rehearsal process with that. I'm sure they rehearsed that scene over and over again. <laughs> I was thinking about rehearsal process after I saw this play, and another thing that I feel is that it was under rehearsed. Felt like they'd just come out of the rehearsal room and were still just trying to find their pace and find their place and find the tempo of the piece. I didn't think they hit all the marks. I didn't think they hit all the points very well. Uh, if there, there were, were even points to hit. Yeah, that, that is that's kind your, of my overall objection to it was what am I learning from this why am I watching this yeah. what why do I care about these people they seem perfectly nice but it wasn't like like oh wow I really learned how to deal with an aging parent I didn't we obviously are not huge fans of this play you got older I should say too I don't mind a languid play I don't mind a slow play I don't mind a play that draws you in so much you're intrigued by every single you know little finger movement on stage and I've seen plays like that but there wasn't enough of that going on to the point where I was like oh I'm so into this I'm like why am I watching this hmm. so it's not a good reaction to hmm. have Javen you've been in at least one production that I know of. As I mentioned earlier, you performed in the Looking Glass Theater production of Moby Dick yep. as one of the sailors on the Pequod. During the course of that evening, you were called upon to do a lot of aerial work, as was a lot of the rest of the cast. Were you instrumental in creating a number of those maneuvers and, and techniques, uh, you know, rehearsal-wise, I'm sure Sylvia Hernandez de Stasi came in with concepts and ideas on how things might be shaped. How much uh, were you influential in bringing shape to her ideas? My understanding of it is that everything sort of, uh, in the visions of David Catlin, of our, our director, he just kind of like balls it out and just kind of gives it gives gives out the idea and Sylvia she's amazing she just I mean she's got a wealth of experience with that stuff and she's worked with David for many many years and she kind of just like lays out in some of the things that we could do and just kind of brainstorm through a bunch of stuff and my part that I come in is where I do this very particular sort of skill set of skills and straps at that time also a lot of the actors are not particularly familiar with a lot of the circus skills and then my job is to just to kind of make sure that people are assimilating, they're kind of learning some of the techniques, even just climbing the poles and stuff. And there's, there's just all, tons of technique that you need to learn before you be, be able to climb up the poles. And generally speaking, it's, it's mostly Sylvia's work. She does, she does a wonderful job just gluing every little piece together and just brainstorming through different ideas. The visuals are always there from Sylvia, and then there are a little bit of things I'll, if, I, if I feel like there needs to be change or a couple other just suggestions, I'll bring it up to the table, and we'll just kind of talk about it and just build it on from there. Can anybody learn to do what you do? Absolutely. I actually, <laughs> really? Uh, Good. I think I'll start. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, th I think you should. I think I will. You've got yeah. the free time. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Not sure I have the strength or the body or any of that, but 
Why, why not? We've talked about late. this with, with uh, <laughs> Sylvia on the show. We had threatened to go to the actor's gymnasium and Uh-oh. take a class. <laughs> Absolutely I, should. I, yeah. I, I know they do adult classes there, correct? They do. Even for absolute beginners, right? Absolutely. Yep. In fact, you can walk into an adult class for, I think, $30 mm. and just sit in on it and participate, participate a little bit can. and yeah. participate where you can. Yeah, they have some drop-in policies. And... So what kind of prerequisites would you recommend someone has before they enter the world of circus performing like you do? For instance, conditioning. We talked a little bit about that sure. a little earlier. The core strength and the body strength and the joint strength seem to be very key to me. Sure, absolutely. I think the thing is about the the stuff I do, Chinese pole and aerial straps. It, it's a pretty difficult apparatus to play on. For example, if you were just to try out trapeze the very first time, at least the first thing you can do is just kind of sit on it, or you'd be able to kind of stand on it. At least you're doing something on this on the on the trapeze, right? So you can kind of like be playful with that stuff. But with straps and pole, Chinese pole, it will get a very frustrating because you just can't do anything at that point if you don't have the core strength and sort of stability so it's usually very helpful supplementary wise just to have that sort of core based strength and be able to do a couple of things and from there on you kind of build on that you could essentially go upside down and do a couple of things but you do need that sort of base core strength which i usually have people kind of like lay down on their back and just be able to hold some like hollow body positions with good forms sure be able to do good few push-ups and sit-ups with good forms that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what i usually look for and um, if they have that and we can just progress from there do they have all that kind of equipment there do they have trapezes and chinese poles and at the actors drapes and all that yeah they do absolutely uh-huh. i have my own pair of straps i have at least three or four uh, one of them is my performance strap so i tend not to use it for with people folks i just use it specifically for my own and I have a couple other pair of straps that I'll kind of bring it to workshops or teach it. So I teach at Actors Gymnasium, and I'm going to start teaching at this place called Circus Team, and I also teach at... Uh, it's called what? Circus Team. Circus Team? Circus Team, yeah, like Esteem, like ESD. Oh, yeah. Circus Team. Oh, yeah. cool. I see. Yeah, they do some great outreach program with kids. Uh, it's a pretty diverse sort of program that involves a lot of kids. Yeah, and I, I mostly teach Chinese ball and straps, and I've, I think at one point I've taught someone who's maybe in his mid-50s, early 60s. Really? He's curious enough to try aerial straps, and I've worked with him, and uh, uh, interesting experience. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> is he still up there? Is he, is He's he, still alive. He, is, I want he's to know. still yeah. hanging. He can't took, get himself it, down. Yeah, he took a few privates from me. I think he really enjoyed it. He's just one of those guys who's just like, it's just such, got such motivation and drive and wanted to do it, wanted to learn because yeah. it's frustrating. He wanted to get behind it and get nice. something out of it, which is great. I know it's obviously there's some dangers. Have you ever been in a situation which was a little bit scary or even hurt yourself? I've broken my ankles a couple of times. Um, <laughs> ankles, a couple yeah, of both times. ankles. Wow. Yeah, I have a refracture on my right ankle and a fracture on the left, and uh, uh, falling on my head a couple of times oh, no. um, during tumbling. It's just this very, very gnarly experience. Even when I was doing Moby Dick, uh, when I was on tour, and I just ended up dislocating my fingers here and there, and um, that stuff that you just kind of have to like deal with and move on as a, a circus mentality, that's just something that you, you're used to and just kind of keep pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
something that's not inherently dangerous, Frank, is something that you're very much involved in, uh, mm-hmm. uh, speech yep. teams and doing acting scenes or poetry scenes. Correct. Yeah, poetry I judge, and things I judge like that. those. I judge the regional, the sectional, and I just last weekend did the state tournament. Yes, you're highly in demand. I am. Something that uh, our producer went to the other night which would have been right up your alley, Frank. I know, was it sounds the, wonderful. the August Wilson Monologue Competition. Yeah. This is the ninth annual competition, and this was the Chicago Regional Finals right here at the Broadway Playhouse in Water Tower Place, which used to be an old movie theater. Now, right, Now right. it's a small performance space run by Broadway in Chicago. This is a marvelous program. The competition is open to all students from the Chicago area high schools. Again, this is the Chicago regionals. Mm-hmm. The national competition includes regional competitions from high school students from across the nation in cities such as Atlanta, Pittsburgh, New York, Seattle, Dallas, Buffalo, New Haven, Los Angeles. The regional winners participate in national finals in New York, attending a Broadway performance and a talkback. They will compete by performing their winning monologues at the August Wilson Theater on Broadway. Now, August Wilson, of course, is most famous for his Century Cycle, which is 10 plays that take place in each decade of the 20th century. And the 20-something finalists, 21 finalists for this regional competition, all did monologues from varying uh, plays Mm -hmm. uh, and and varying uh, roles. The person who won, Nia Sarfo, did Molly from Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Second place was a uh, woman named Chisholm Chima. Uh, from King, yes. Mm -hmm. She did Tonya from King Hedley II. That's a wonderful play. Uh, And Evan Simpson came in third and did Youngblood from the play Jitney. Jitney, sorry. I almost said Gypsy. (laughs) That'd be weird. Gypsy by August Wilson. Uh, Let me throw this in. Um, I told you I judged the state tournament. There were two young men doing a scene from Jitney by August Wilson. And if you have the right students, a lot of times they will do August Wilson stuff, and sometimes that's some of the best stuff that's there. Not only just these top three, but everyone was phenomenal. I'm sure. The top three finalists received scholarships of $500, $250, and $100, respectively. The top two finalists will also receive an all-expense-paid trip to New York, as I said, and they'll they'll go to a Broadway performance of something for the opportunity to perform at the National August Wilson Monologues Competition on May 7th. Mm -hmm. I understand that this is open to the public, it is May 7th. May 7th. Yeah. Okay. It gives yeah. us some time to make some plans. One thing that she did say, our producer, was that it was being filmed by oh. three or four cameras. Wow. And they're creating a documentary about it. I think it's a documentary by the guy who did the documentary about a chorus line. Do you remember that a few years ago? I do, yeah. Yeah. yeah it was this an is, HBO special or something. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the same guy and I guess production I wonder if he'll follow it. If it's just the Chicago one or if he'll follow it and actually do the finals and clue the whole operation. I think they did tapings of some other regionals. Okay. But they put all of their big bucks into multi-camera shoot of the Chicago Chicago one one at the uh, Broadway Playhouse at Water Tower Place. So I wanted to mention that. Acting-wise, Javen, would you like to do more acting in a non-circus environment? Uh, Have you been bitten by the acting bug? I mean, 
theater and circus are hand in hand as performing arts. You, you know, you you can't have one without the other in many respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you interested in a in a larger acting career? Absolutely. I think I I have this conversation with a lot of my friends who are actors and and especially the friends who I've made through you know being in, in the production production of Moby Dick and. It's it's nice to have that sort of conversation of like okay like you you've actually not done never done this stuff before, and to this day I still think like you know me being and then part of Moby Dick and doing the audition sort of rehearsal process actually like I had I actually didn't know what rehearsal meant at the time uh, or like an audition mm. meant and Sylvia uh, had just kind of tossed me into this one of those auditioning process and and I just kind of walked in there not really knowing what was happening and David Catlin was sitting there and I just. I think to this day, I still think that David just kind of arbitrarily chose me and just like just to see what would happen. He had me read some like scripts and dialogues, and which is like so new to me at the time because up until then, I just never exposed myself to the theater world. That's quite a cultural shock there. It just was to be, it, it just really to be was. handed a script and say, read these lines and go, what do you mean, read lines? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I hear you. I was kind of straight to the point, just being like, uh, I've actually never read script before. <laughs> And David was just like so encouraging. He's just like just such a great person for just he was just like just feel whatever it feels inside, whatever feels right. Just go ahead and just do it. Just just read it nice and you know just loud out loud. My impression of it was that because I've actually never seen a theater show up until then, and I've the, the only theater show I've ever seen was the Alice at Looking Glass Theater. And I remember I remember clearly seeing it with my mom and just being in awe. I was just completely shocked at the fact that this is theater. This is rare. this is how theater works. Wow! I just remember being mesmerized by it. And when I started the sort of the initial stages of auditioning process, I remember I was just like being auditioned for Looking Class. I just remember being like, "This is pretty fantastic." And I, I knew the types of work that they do, which is very physically involved. I just wanted to be an asset and as a circus performer, which is kind of a new sort of this niche sort of thing. And I very much enjoyed the experience, and especially the acting part of it, especially when you surround yourself with these people who've done this work for so many years. They're just entrenched in this t- style of work. And you sit around the table just doing reading. I just remember being like, what am I doing on this table? <laughs> these guys are just like... Did you have, I, I unfortunately did not see it. Did you have many lines? A few lines. David Catlin decided that because the story of the, the Moby Dick is that it's just basically an amalgamation of a lot of you know diverse folks, people who are just coming on the ship with single mission to hunt whale, collect oil, and just sort of for whatever reasons, right? These people are who are kind of just isolados that have they have one common goal, which is to hunt whales. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's just sort of the idea of race and sort of superiority and all of that stuff is out the window. Everybody's chasing after the same thing. You ha- you put built this sort of repertoire and trust among each other. And then David suggested that, well, he asked me actually, is like, what? so I, I'd like you to play this character named Tashtego, which I believe is a Native American character. And then and, and, and at the same time, at some point, he was like, well, do you have like any sort of name? Like, I mean, I know you're from Mongolia. What kind of name do you go by? And my actual birth given name is Mungun, which means silver. It's a Mongolian name. And David at that point was like... I'm sorry, what does it mean? It means silver. It actually, silver. Yeah, it actually has to do with the, the silver clown that my mom won at the uh. festival. And she kind of named me after the... Yeah. And David was like, yeah, let's go by that name. Let's have you be Mungun. Let's, well, why don't we have, character yeah, name. Let's, yeah. why, why don't we have you as this Mongolian guy who ends up on the ship? And because there's a diverse group of people, there's people from all over the world on the ship. 
That David Catlett is so smart. <laughs> We've had him on the show before, um, uh-huh. previously. Uh, with Sylvia, actually. We mm. had them both on together, and uh, we were talking about Moby Dick. When oh, it was, I actually didn't know that. Uh, I, I, right I, after yeah. it had been premiered at, at Looking Glass, and uh, he's, a, he's a smart guy, isn't he's he? He's a very cerebral I'm guy. I'm sure yeah. he was absolutely impressed with your work and probably found you very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he works mm, a lot true. with... Actor types. Well, he teaches, you know, acting students, Mm -hmm. and he works with actors who are used to all of that. I'm sure someone coming into the room and saying, I've actually never really read from a script or (laughs) seen a script or know what you're actually talking about, Mm -hmm. was probably quite exciting for him. Mm -hmm. It would have been for me if I'd been sitting in that audition room. I know when I used to coach high school and, and teach theater in high school, and even when I taught at College of DuPage as well, I certainly enjoyed having students with experience, but I also liked people who didn't have any experience and were very excited and wanted to learn everything. Mm-hmm. And it was very exciting to work with those people. Javen, you, you worked on a project, I want to touch on this briefly, at the uh, Lake Placid Center for the Arts, mm-hmm. uh, creating uh, new circus works for a program called Circus Now Residency Project. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, was that uh, last year? Sure. It was right about the, yeah, last year, about the same time. Um, it was in between the tour that I was doing with Moby Dick, sort of national tour, and it just worked out so well that in between I couldn't actually go to Lake Placid and create a show with my friends. And it was such a great opportunity. Uh, Circus, uh, Circus Now is such a, it's this non-for-profit organization that kind of promotes the sort of North American circus artists and sort of allowing them to have this platform to be able to create shows and not exclusively, but generally sort of promoting the idea of American circus. We uh, applied for this program. We had a person, we had a friend of ours who had this experience in sort of writing grants and being able to take care of all the paperwork stuff. And, and we just like submitted it. It's the five of us. And we ended up getting the grant, which we're just completely ecstatic about. I, I think I showed up maybe like a week later or so than everybody else. And we just like sat in this like sort of dark theater. And we it was during the sort of crazy snowstorm. It's the Lake Placid. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Lots of snow and lots, not a lot of action going on. It just kind of also makes you focus to just like do what of winter olympic athletes uh, come yeah, out of like classic oh, yeah they even had the olympics one year didn't they, they did yeah. they did ski People jumpers were still doing like luges like and all of that stuff and you could yeah. hear from miles away because it's so loud is it yeah and they housed us in this basement of a theater with like no windows just like completely dark and we were Great. also show the type of <laughs> nice. shows that we were yeah. also the, the show that we were creating was also kind of sort of on the darker themes very dismal sort of utopian not utopian sort dystopian, dystopian sort of world yeah. yeah yeah and we were there for a little over a month or so almost a couple of months just like being with five people in the dark room just going into a dark theater creating a dark show and <laughs> we worked with this guy named uh, Cody Harrell which was our director he had a lot of influence on me at least in terms of the physical theater and the sort of physicality of what it means to be on stage and express ourselves in whatever, however it feels right. I think there's a, some kind of saying, uh, I don't know if it was by Jean Lacan or Pina Bosch, but I think there's like something about it. The work doesn't have to find an audience that, that has to understand the work, but as long as it feels right for you to do it, you just kind of have to do it on stage and you have to find ways to challenge the spectators in some ways. Oh, and I like that. That's, yeah. kind of the, the, yeah. that's kind of like the, the, the sort of the lesson, the, the sort of takeaway for me, at least from that show, was to be able to create these sort of images and just do some absurd, absurd stuff on stage, but still be able to involve the audience in some cerebral sort of way and just grasp their attention in, in, in such a way that you're not necessarily identifying yourself with the characters on stage, with the emotional apex of whatever's happening on stage, but be able to think about the stuff that's happening on stage. 
it's just also just so much fun creating it because how often do you get to go out to like the middle of nowhere with your friends and you know, create oh, a show? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Other than your backyard at age yeah. 10. Yeah. Never. <laughs> Speaking of darker undertones, mm. Frank, have you heard about uh, Bernadette Peters' performance in Hello, Dolly recently? Not recently. I'm not talking about a particular performance. I'm talking about her performance overall. Well, it got she got reviewed yeah. uh, in the New York press and glowing Good. reviews. Good. She's a nightingale. She sings the heck out of the show, apparently. And they did say that there's a darker underlay to her Dolly Levi than, oh. say, Bette Midler. One thing I found a little fascinating was that Bernadette Peters is a widow. She is. I remember a couple of years ago, her husband died. Right. Yeah. So she really could play up the widow aspect, because Dolly is obviously a widow. She keeps talking to her exactly. husband. Exactly. Yeah. So she has a little bit of mm-hmm. mm, gravitas to that yeah, part yeah. of the role that maybe Bette Midler didn't bring. Of course, they're totally different types of actresses. Yeah, Bette Midler played her, played her very, not so much sarcastic, but kind of a, as a wisecracker. Yeah. Carol Channing played her as sort of a wide-eyed, almost kind of dopey, dopey as a fox kind of a person. And Bette Midler was like, come on, let's do this. Uh, I cannot see Bernadette Peters doing that. I can see her bringing a whole different thing to it. And if she adds a darkness to it, because there is a darkness. I mean, the last number in Act One, before the parade passes by, she's like, I want to do something before I'm too old. Sure. You know, give me a sign. Show that you still want me to go on. And then she does get yeah. a sign later yeah. on. Well, I hear she's marvelous. Good. And I know I the, don't the think receipts have, have stayed pretty much, I don't think they're over the top like Bets were, but yeah. it's moving along healthfully. As well it should. I mean, it's as, as you know, you saw it. It's yeah. a terrific show. It is. And you Just heard who's getting the tour. Terrific. Betty Buckley. Betty Buckley's coming the on tour. tour. Yeah, mm-hmm. who should be good. Uh, Javen, before we go, I wanted to ask you about the Actors Gymnasium. What's going on there now? Are you working on a new production with the students? Yeah, currently there's a production of their their annual winter production show. I helped a little bit with the sort of choreography for the kids to be able to like play on the poles and create some art visual stuff and i think it runs until later march or early april it's going to be on for for a little bit Great. so i encourage people to go see that show their productions are always amazing and uh and where's the gymnasium at Do you have an address is 927 noise avenue it's at the avinson noise cultural center okay just starting tomorrow i'll be teaching i'll be offering a class that is sort of the mix between chinese pole and straps that's going to be running for another month at the actors <laughs> and gymnasium. how many so, students do you traditionally have in a difficult. class it depends if i'm teaching kids sometimes it's like 18 to 20 kids and wow. if it's like a private session it's just one person just one-on-one. yeah mm. yep. you can find out more information about javen and the activities at uh, the actors gymnasium by going to www.actorsgymnasium.org mm-hmm and our website, of course, is, as always, booth-one.com. Right. Not the numeral one, but the O-N-E, O-N-E. one. Javen, we frequently play a little parlor game with our guests mm. called Chat Pack. It's just a series of random questions that we then all answer. I wonder if you would be game to play a round or two with us. There's no prizes. This is not a competition. It's just an exhibition. No wagering, Frank. Okay, I'll help um, put my wallet would away. Would you be uh, yeah, that willing? Yeah, sounds great. Great. I'm going to hold up a bunch of cards, and I'm going to ask you to draw one and read that to us, and we'll see what we come up with. Whenever you are having a bad day, what is the best thing you can do to help cheer yourself up? Ooh, listen to podcasts. <laughs> Play music. Play music. 
do you actually play? Or I you, play a little bit, yeah. What do I, you play? Uh, I play a little bit of guitar. When I was back in Mongolia, I had this kid in my high school who was just so good at guitar, and he was the only kid who could play guitar in, in the entire high school. Fortunately, he was a friend of mine, but I would go to his house to literally pick up stuff and like clean his house in order for him to teach me a couple of chord progressions. And <laughs> I kind of just like picked it up from there. And I just, I yeah. could, I, when I came to the United States, I could play like five chord progressions at that point. Oh. And I remember at that, it was the 2000, 2005 or so, I remember discovering the on demand on Xfinity or Comcast at the time and being just, just realizing that you can watch stuff that's pre recorded and people can teach you how to play guitar on cable network which kind of blew my mind away <laughs> so i yeah. started browsing through a bunch of channels pre-recorded channels of people teaching guitars and i just kind of started playing it he, he's got more talents than he does uh, he, he knows does. what to do with <laughs> i wish i had a few how about you frank anything you do to cheer yourself up yeah just thinking about it i think i like to watch either an old movie or an old tv show or some kind of old familiar thing usually a comedy and i'll start laughing and that'll help me to to forget whatever is upsetting me and then when it's over i can go back to being depressed again i see mm-hmm. how about you I, I i just wallow in my <laughs> in my bad mood <laughs> you enjoy being yeah frankly some sort of outdoor activity mm. usually cheers me yeah, up which is why it. i don't fare all that well in the winter time yeah uh, as you probably know frank i'm, I'm an avid golfer and oh, yeah. um, I, I like to go out and play or just to go to the driving range or something. Just to do something physical outdoors usually cheers me up. Okay. Yeah, but you're right. In Chicago, if it's 20 below, it's not going to cheer you up. It's going to make you worse if you go out. I keep looking at photographs of golf courses in Tucson and seeing those people <laughs> out there, but yeah, that's a long way to go. Let's play one more, yeah, Javen. All right? All right. When you look back on the life you have lived to this point, what in particular amazes you the most? I'm still here. <laughs> that, you know, that's not a bad answer. Yeah, It's um, a fair answer. Javen? I think uh, just the sort of my journey of just like how I ended up here <laughs> to begin with. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm amazed no, by no, it. I am. I'm here like on, on this podcast, which is pretty amazing. Mongolia is a long way is, from, long from way. booth one. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Mostly due to my parents is just kind of making a decision at that age of like, you know, mid 50s and just kind of moving to a whole different country. And me kind of just tagging along and just kind of making it work and, you know, doing doing stuff that I love. Yeah. 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 I think what amazes me the most is when I was deciding what to do for college, I chose a a drama school, Illinois Wesleyan University, Mm -hmm. over pre-med. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I think what amazes me is that ever since then, I have been able to make a living and be productive in the performing arts world in some fashion. I've never had to wait tables. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never had to uh, answer phones in an office. I've always been fortunate and lucky enough to land a place where the performing arts and the creative arts are are the essence of, oh, of wow, my job, my, yeah. my career, I guess. 
did we hear what your uh, well, when I had a couple, amazement is? My amazement is that I kind of enjoyed every single segment of my life. I had a wonderful high school experience. I loved it. I loved college. I loved teaching high school. I loved teaching college. And I love being retired. So I feel very lucky that I have enjoyed every single one of those stages as opposed to, well, this one wasn't so great. But this was good. And I don't know if it's me or I was just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. But I've had a great time in every single one of those things. So I'm kind of amazed at that because I don't know how many people get to say that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, I'm happy for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy you're still here. And I am still here. Yeah, yeah. I, not much longer. <laughs> <laughs> Javen, as uh, our listeners well know and Frank knows, we end our podcast with a segment that we call The Kiss of Death. Mm. Uh, now, it's not quite as deep and dark as that sounds. Literal. It's really a celebration of the life of someone who we've recently lost. They could be famous, not famous. Right, just somebody Ordinary people. You know, every theater goer recognizes how ephemeral live performance is. I'm sure that you experienced this, Javen, in circus as well. Mm-hmm. Once the curtain comes down or the show is over, that particular show vanishes forever, and you only have the memories of the audience and the actors and the performers who can relive right. that. Yeah. The next day, it's a different show, mm-hmm. even if you're doing eight shows a week. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Rick McKay made it his task to preserve some of those memories He recorded hundreds of hours of interviews. You might very well know this gentleman, Frank, Hmm. once I get a little bit deeper into this, with dozens of actors about their recollections of New York theater, then turned them into a documentary in 2004 called Broadway, The Golden Age by Legends Who Were There. I have that. I have the DVDs. Yeah, Yeah. it's a a wonderful piece. Mm -hmm. At the time of his death, McKay was at work on two sequel documentaries, uh, Broadway Beyond the Golden Age, which I understand understand was given a preliminary screening at the 2016 Palm Springs International Film Festival. Oh. You go to Palm Springs once I do. In a while. I, I do. I, I, uh, Mr. McKay sang in cabarets and on cruise ships and produced segments for programs about the arts on the New York public television channels before he began interviewing Broadway performers, originally with the idea of using the material for another public TV mm-hmm. segment. But he soon envisioned a grander project. It became more feasible when he persuaded the actress B. Arthur mm-hmm. to let him interview her at her home in the mid-1990s. Uh, the interview went so well, she contacted some of her friends, her famous friends, uh, and he used her connections and those of his own friends in show business as entree to an ever wider circle of celebrities. He was a, by all accounts, a convivial and sympathetic interviewer, the secret to getting stars to open up about their lives, he said, and this is not going to be any secret to anyone, is do extensive research and make it about them, constantly (laughs) about them. Yeah. He interviewed Julie Harris, Stephen Sondheim, Ben Gazzara, Elaine Stritch, Carol Burnett, Diane Carroll, Alec Baldwin, and Shirley MacLaine, among luminaries. Also Barbara Cook, Carol Burnett, Celeste Holm, Angela Lansbury, mm-hmm. and Jerry Orbach. Wow. Uh, you remember this documentary. He I had do. pretty much everybody yeah, he on. Did. He really did. Everybody who was still alive mm-hmm. from the golden age. In Broadway, which Mr. McKay produced, again, referring to Broadway, the golden age by the legends who were there, Miss McLean reminisced about making lemonade for herself out of free lemons, water, and sugar at a Manhattan automat when she was just starting out. Uh, Ben Gazzara recalled skipping school for more than a month to see every play on Broadway. 
That must have been something. Yeah. Carol Burnett remembered sharing an audition dress with three other aspiring actresses. Oh. <laughs> you see the sacrifices, Javen, that these actors go yep. through. Yeah, you have uh, that to look forward to. Mr. McKay tracked down rare archival footage, including, and I didn't know that this existed, an audio recording of Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire from the original Broadway run in the late 1940s. Ooh. Have you ever heard that, Frank? I have not. I have not either. I didn't even know something like that existed. Wow, somebody was pirating back then. Yeah, this documentary won more than a dozen awards uh, at film festivals. Richard Charles McKay was born August 30th, 1955. Ooh, not that old. Uh, in the suburb of Boston, his mother was a homemaker and a theater buff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can there imagine so. Well, when Rick was still young, the family moved to Beach Grove, Indiana, near Indianapolis, where he was an active member of the musical theater scene there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he taught at the Indiana School for the Deaf, moved to Boston in the early 70s. Then he lived in Japan, where he was Get this, an English teacher and a nightclub singer. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. After moving back to New York, he kept singing in clubs and on cruises and later turned to broadcast and print journalism. After a career as a cabaret performer, McKay entered the world of documentary filmmaking with a film called Birds of a Feather, a film about drag queens that he began as background research for the late Mike Nichols film, The Birdcage. His later work included a backstage look at the 1998 Broadway revival of The Sound of Music mm-hmm. and the film of Elaine Stritch's solo show, At Liberty, which I've seen. It was a great show. Did you see it live? No, I just oh. saw this taped. Yeah, I saw uh, it At his death, uh, Mr. McKay was also working on a documentary about the actress Fay Ray, a friend of his for many, many oh. years. We've lost Rick McKay. His age has been variously given in some publications as either 57 or 62. This is a legacy that just will never leave. We will always have this documentary. Yeah, how great for him to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Javen, it's been a pleasure having you Absolutely. on the show. Absolutely, to be here. Uh, you have been a stellar guest, very nimble and athletic, may I say, <laughs> if a guest could be yeah. that way. Thank you so much for being with us on Booth One. Frank, always a pleasure. Oh, I had a good time. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.